The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us on the phone to discuss the brand new book, Afterlife, A Collective History of Loss and Redemption in Pandemic America, are two of the book's editors, Dr. Carrie Lee Merritt and also Dr. Yahuru Williams. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. So I'm so excited for this conversation. That might sound like a weird way to start a conversation about grief and loss um, in the context of American history. Um, But I'm excited that you have this book (laughs) because this conversation is so important. I feel like and I often come on air this morning and people that listen to the show regularly will tell you, I feel sometimes like I am like the only one like I'm losing it. I'm like, did a million people just die or not, right? Like a a million Americans just passed away. We went through a so-called racial reckoning that is seemingly kind of over at this point. We're sort of past that. And it feels like we're numb. So Dr. Merritt, I'll start with you. I mean, when, when you think about the scale of the loss on every level in this moment, um, are we numb? I think that's exactly why we wrote this book. Um, We, are almost in kind of a state, I think, of uh, continual PTSD, where we have not even stepped back enough from what has just happened over the past few years, processed any of it, actually dealt with the grief, and and are you know we're just continued to to live our lives and go on as if nothing has happened, and this has been you know, historically in this country the biggest case of mass death we have ever experienced. And it feels almost like, you know, we're being gaslit in some ways by by the government, by society, by by a lot of uh, mainstream journalism, because the the scale of this grief is just not being talked about. So thank you so much for for bringing light to this. Oh, I feel like I'm being gaslit as a member of the media (laughs) Um, sometimes. Um, I, I, I feel like I'm like, am I the only one that sees sort of the coming catastrophe that is, you know, long COVID and the impacts potentially um, on our entire country and the future of every single aspect of that country or the learning loss and an entire generation of children? And that is in addition to the loss of life, actual life um, that we're discussing. And and Dr. Yur- uh, Yurhu, or Dr. Williams, actually, in your essay, which is really, really important, um, these essays are a collection of a number of different historians. So it is not just about the loss in COVID, but also about American history, which in this moment is not a sort of objective you know, statement that's not controversial to even talk about these days. Can you talk a bit about how the racial reckoning and what happened with George Floyd in 2020, in the summer, in the middle of the pandemic, um, why that was a catalyst for 
in the pandemic for people to say, no, okay, I'm, I'm going to go outside. I'm going outside right now because this is a moment in which I, my voice needs to be heard on this issue, even though it may be, you know, dangerous or it, it may be um, something that I hadn't been doing because we had all sort of been um, on lockdown up into that point, but we burst into the streets. Do you think that that was also related to the PTSD that Dr. Merritt was talking about and this idea that we, it was a reaction um, to the fact that so much of that emotion had been pent up throughout the first part of this pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the interesting things about that moment is it reminded me in a, in a very real sense of the words of Ralph Ellison and Invisible Man. I'm invisible, um, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. And in the opening days of the pandemic, uh, as people were kind of sheltering in place and um, kind of dealing with the fallout of that moment, there was also the invisibility of people of color and how they were impacted um, disproportionately by the pandemic because of a lack of access to healthcare, because of the um, long effects of deindustrialization, and um, because of the way that our inner cities are configured, because of um, problems with infrastructure. So in some sense, after the murder of George Floyd, it was um, an affirmation and a demand to be seen, um, to be visible, uh, to go out and to share in community a grief, um, and to do that in a way that affirmed the mantra of the movement, Black Lives Matter. But they, you, you know, it had to be hyper-visible in that sense. It was, in some sense, um, uh, a desire uh, in that moment to convene with others who understood and appreciated the wound that produced the narrative of Black Lives Matter. It was a demand in some sense for people who were allies to also uh, convene and to be seen and to be uh, in, in commune and in company with those who were uh, protesting, um, not just for George Floyd, but for this kind of incredible loss of life that was exacerbated by mm. the pandemic that also included the deaths of Ahmed Aubrey and Breonna Taylor. Uh, so for us, again, as, as Carrie Lee said, in writing um, this book or kind of dealing with this, we were processing all of that and what this, what those things meant um, collectively as we kind of went through these multiple um, waves of loss and experienced them in a way, um, in a very truncated period, um, that forced not only the racial reckoning, but a mm -hmm. reckoning of what the very meaning of America is. It, it, it's so important to think of it that way. Um, and, I, and I love that Ellison quote um, to help people understand it. And, and I feel really strongly that my, my therapist at the very beginning of the pandemic told me you can't process trauma in the middle of it. Um, and I feel like that is helpful advice and it, it's been helping <laughs> um, because, you know, sometimes I try to process everything that's happening and I'm like, I feel like my brain breaks in the middle. <laughs> um, but I also think that maybe because of our resistance to process trauma in the middle, because we're sort of always kind of being traumatized as Americans in some way, depending upon who we are. Um, it, it, it leads us to a place where we never actually reckon, right? We, we talk about the racial reckoning, but we have we, Dr. Williams, actually reckoned with the things that led to the murder of George Floyd and tried to change the things that led to his murder so that no one else has to deal with that circumstance. I don't feel like we've, we call it a reckoning, but I'm, my question is, have we actually reckoned with the history that led us there? 
I don't think we have. And in fact, that's what some of my favorite essays in this volume um, mm. kind of deal with that issue mm -hmm. uh, from that perspective. You know, the problem with Americans is we like a tragedy with a happy ending. And even the selection of the word reckoning implies that at some point we'll, we'll move beyond. Um, this is the desire, we can go back to the election of Barack Obama to be post-racial. And so reckoning um, in and of itself implies that at some point we'll be able to move past this. I think the most visible example of that happened here in Minneapolis in the aftermath of the Chauvin trial where the uh, city of Minneapolis came in and removed George Floyd Square. They just kind of got rid of it with the assumption that, you know, we've moved past this now. Justice has been served. The officers responsible have been punished. But it did nothing to address the deeper structural inequalities that helped to produce that situation in the first place. Um, and one of the essays in, in this volume, um, it's one of my favorite essays, actually, Philip Deloria writes in the, in the opening, when reality shatters a young person's dreams, there's usually a bystander or two. I think what's so powerful about this moment is that we've all been bystanders, but at the same time, participants mm -hmm. in the trauma that you describe. And it's like a nightmare. You can't escape it. It will touch you or it touches everyone in a particular kind of way. Um, that racial reckoning in particular, uh, this time, at least in terms of people of color, you heard Al Sharpton speak to this, um, and I write about this in my essay, uh, when he eulogized George Floyd, says, when I looked out this time and saw more whites marching, I knew it was a different time and a different mm -hmm. season, but it was also a moment where people couldn't turn away. And that's the important, you know, um, the, the pandemic almost forced people to confront in a way, this racial injustice. Once um, that's gone and they can distract themselves again, I fear that the reckoning that we're talking about, which is more of an awareness than a reckoning will dissipate as well. I think that's a really, really important point. And I've, I've thought a lot about that. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I'm like, what was it that made it so different from other moments um, in the racial justice movement? And even in sort of the iteration of Black Lives Matter in the last 10 years, because it did feel different. And I do think it was because literally people had nothing else to, uh, you know, distract them. They didn't, they weren't going out commuting to work. They weren't doing all their, their activities. They literally were in the house. And so therefore they were forced to look and reckon with so many things. And Dr. Merritt, one of the things that I think will persist beyond this moment in the immediate um, present is, is long COVID. And, and one of the things that we've talked a lot on this show about, we had Ed Young on recently um, talking about brain fog um, and going in depth on, on that particular topic, I feel like long COVID is going to be the thing that, not that grief doesn't stay with you forever, because it certainly does, and the, the literal loss of life is going to stay with the people who loved those individuals, but long COVID is something that's going to impact us in the long term. Um, can you talk a bit about why we just we're ignoring that fact too? We not only ignore we're, we not only ignored the loss of life, we're also pretty much ignoring, except for like Senator Tim Kaine, the fact that millions of people are unable to work or maybe unable to work because of the consequences of COVID infections. Right. So this is a, a very personal issue to me. Actually, mm -hmm. while I was writing my personal essay in this book, I contracted COVID, um, even though I was vaccinated, after keeping my children out of school for a full year, the minute they went back, of course, uh, we got COVID from their school. And I was incredibly, incredibly sick, despite being vaccinated, um, and, and you know, had long COVID, essentially, and went through a period of months where I couldn't speak correctly. And honestly, writing this book was 
was the one way I was able to communicate where I could actually get my thoughts together. I couldn't speak, I, but I could write. And so this is something I've personally dealt with. Luckily, I am in a privileged position in society. I have healthcare, but the reason that we're not talking about this is is political. It's precisely because we don't have universal health care in this country. It's because so much of this has been a failure of government, a failure at every level, from the federal to the state to the local, that we are not taking care of our people, that we are one of the richest nations in the world, in the history of the world, and yet we don't have basic civil rights, human rights for our citizens and the people in this country who are working, who are putting their lives on, those, on the line every day to take care of others, and we don't give them the basic human right of health care. And this is, you know, right now we're under a democratic president, a democratic Congress um, in a lot of ways, and we are not doing a thing about it. No one is sounding the alarm that this is a major, major issue um, from every level, not just uh, um, from healthcare, but from a labor perspective, mm -hmm. from a social perspective, mm -hmm. from an economic perspective. And unless we deal with this from a a governmental, uh, you know, all hands on deck and make this a priority, we are going to see a crisis of unknown proportions in this country in the coming years. I mean, I, I, I always roll my eyes when I see headlines where like the great resignation. I'm like, you guys understand the math here, right? Um, over a million Americans actually died and also millions more are suffering from health impacts and consequences from COVID infections. I do not think that it is just a bunch of people deciding they don't want to go to work. I do not think that is what's happening. I think it is a lot more complicated than that. Um, and, and to your point, um, we are uh, dearth, we have a, a, an extreme dearth of resources um, to address those, those issues. When you sort of broaden the scope beyond COVID, we just lived through Hurricane Ian. And the climate catastrophe also feels like... Um, you know, the looming, it's like the, you know, we're headed for the iceberg, but like, I didn't realize there were a series of icebergs it, before we got to the bigger one. Like, you know, the Titanic just like sort of hit the iceberg. We're just like going through a series of smaller icebergs, I suppose. And then the big iceberg, which is climate, climate, the climate catastrophe is coming. And also, you know, future pandemics, we have the war in Ukraine. It just feels like there needs to be a large, like a shift towards the collective <laughs> um, and in and, and a refocus on the way in which we can actually build community and protect one another. And then that builds out to sort of the entire country. And Dr. Merritt, do you think that the pandemic and our lack of the ability to be able to come together collectively to address, you know, put on masks and protect each other, do you see that as sort of a bad sign um, with all of these other crises sort of looming in the future? I think that in many ways, it's easy to be pessimistic about this, of course, and I fall into to, to pessimism very easily, but I think that we also have to hold on to this radical hope that mm. um, many of our authors talk about that Uhuru writes about extensively, um, this radical hope that you see um, in through lines in American history throughout civil rights movement. You have to hold on to that hope. And, mm. and at, at the core of that, of course, is loving kindness, it's community, it's caring about our fellow human beings. And one thing I wanna say in all of this is that even through the, the pandemic, um, what we did see in the Black Lives Matter movement was an unprecedented number of young white 
uh, Americans coming out and joining together. And so I think that when we're, we're thinking about this, I think there's hope in that younger generation. I think that's where we need to be looking to. That's where we need to see the progress that's being made. And that's where we need to be um, placing as many resources as we can, because those are the people that realize what's going on, not only racially, but also with climate change and everything else that, that we're facing in the coming years. And, and really give give power to those people, give voices to those people, let them be the leaders, because right now, um, you know, the gerontocracy is just not doing it. it. It's such an important point. And Dr. Williams, I think it's it's actually related to my last question in the last few minutes here, which is about um, the future of these movements. And in your essay, um, obviously talk about um, Black Lives Matter and the history and the beginnings of a third reconstruction. Um, can you talk a bit about how you see this shaping up in the future, this new generation of leaders that maybe we learn their names during the racial reckoning, um, some people did, um, for the very first time, but who are continuing to work every day, um, you know, around these issues of racial justice so that we can actually, <laughs> hopefully, as Dr. Merrick said, be optimist, be more optimistic um, about the future here. Well, I think it's such a, it's a, a great question. And I think in a lot of ways, it speaks to what you were sharing about the collective and, and something that um, Dr. Merritt and I wrote about in our in our joint conclusion. I think part of the challenge of this moment is to recognize in a way as Black Lives Matter did that a leaderless model really um, forces us to deal with the need for a collective, that this mm. is beyond the individual, that individuals, you know, this has been our problem historically of looking to one person to define problems or issues in a way that are palatable to the majority, um, as opposed to dealing with the kind of intricate and messy nature of these interrelated um, challenges, white supremacy, gender inequality, um, environmental uh, injustice. So uh, for me, when I think about this, when we talk about a third reconstruction, the failure of the first reconstruction in a lot of ways wasn't simply to a failure of enforcement. It was a failure to recognize that it wasn't just about ensuring um, the rights of African-American men. It had to be broader than that. It had to look at, you know, as um, Dr. Merritt talked about, the economic, the social, mm -hmm. the political. And in this moment in particular, the cultural. Um, you know, we have uh, several essays that talk about January 6th, but it, for me in particular, January 6th is one of those moments that points to um, this break with reality over what we aspire to be, or at least what we claim to be, why so many people, despite its shortcomings, could believe in the American enterprise because there was this aspirational um, goal that we, we were supposedly moving to, to. And where we are now, which I think um, Carrie Lee writes about brilliantly in her um, essay, uh, where she talks about um, the PSTD that she was suffering even before this. I think there's the, uh, Jacqueline Dow Hall puts it this way, the grief that came before the grief. I think a lot of us were mourning the loss of that aspirational hope that we could be better, mm. even leading up to the uh, pandemic and to the racial reckoning. Yeah. And what the racial reckoning and the pandemic have done is accelerate the, that despair that we, we have over what the future can bring. Now we're challenging that through radical hope. But that death before the death, the grief that came before the grief, I think, is important to acknowledge. That's a really, really important point. And, and unfortunately, I have to end it there because we're out of time. But it's I've really um, taken a lot away from this conversation. And I, I hope our view, uh, listeners did as well. Dr. Merritt and Dr. Williams, the book is Afterlife. Um, it, uh, 
loss and redemption in pandemic America. It's so important that folks pick this book up. I need us um, to understand this collective history. And so many of these historians I, I know and love, uh, Dr. Joseph, Dr. Kelly, um, both of those historians um, I know well. Um, so this is a terrific collection of essays and I highly recommend it to anyone out there. Thank you so much for being here this morning. It was great to have you. Please stay safe. Thank you so much and thank you for your important work. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday. Thank you.